Hello and welcome, friends. 133, episode 133 of the Life in Red podcast. Returning and hopefully going to be able to be here a little bit more consistently. If you're wondering where I've been, uh, why there haven't been any new episodes lately, we've been dealing with some burnout. Um, social media, the world, life. If you've heard me talk on this podcast before, or heard me on any other podcast recently, you know that. Um, I talked about how heavy the world is right now and how heavy social media and the pressures have been. So I was burnt out. I had compassion fatigue and I needed to step away uh, pretty much to the point of reducing my phone and social media consumption by probably about 90%. Um, So I was really away, but I'm feeling better and excited to bring you a new episode. My guest today, super interesting, fascinating conversation. Um... It was on the intersections of religion and mental health. Um, My guest is a psychotherapist, so we were able to cover a lot of parts about the work he does there with clients, some of the perceptions he's seeing and challenges over this pandemic and, and other certain areas of life. But he's also studying to become a rabbi. And we talk about Judaism and how... You know, anti-Semitism affects mental health and the intersections of, you know, once upon a time we we might have been, we might have seemed a little like mentally stronger or healthier. And that's that's hard to say. Um, there's a lot of factors at play there. So what we talk about is how the, the foundations and the teachings and the community that surround things like religion and more specifically in no my guest almost dropped his name there, but it's coming um, about, you know, the work they do in religion and how that kind of intersects and in the fundamental needs of our brain. You can check out some of his work or book him. Um, he has a company. It's called Resolve. Uh, also has a podcast called Change Talk. I highly recommend. It was a super introspective, great conversation. So please give it up for my guest, Noah Tile. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Alright, here we go. My good friend Noah, how's it going, sir? What are your uh, definitions of a good friend? I just so, met you, uh, but uh, I can I tell everyone you're my good friend. As soon as I meet you, I'm, we're just friends. That's how it works. I like that. I like that. But I wonder, I feel like sometimes you can meet people and become very close very fast. Um, I always, uh, you know, when I have most of my close friends are from summer camp from so many years ago. Mm-hmm. And there's something about, it's not just the amount of time you spend together, but it's actually the quality of the amount of consecutive time that you spend together. So let's say you knew somebody for five months, but you saw them once a week. But if you knew somebody for a month, but you saw them every day or for three weeks and you saw them every day, like it's not just that you see them more in a, sh- in a shorter time. So it's you've known them for less, but you see them more. So you actually mm. know them more, but you also, it's like focused. It's deeper. It's focused. It's kind of like the difference between doing 30 minutes of work in one sitting versus a 10 minute then stop and then a 10 minute then stop when you when you accumulate it it kind of gets even deeper um so we've met we had a great at one hour conversation but maybe i've had five splintered 10 minute conversations with people that i've known over months but we've had a longer conversation in yes. a more qualitative sense so that that's a little bit of a rant for uh, <laughs> beginning of this episode. and a perfect preamble to sort of what you do and how you look at the world and analyze it um, a psychotherapist, a business owner, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, I, last time we chatted, I can't remember when you said, but uh, practicing, trying to, soon to be soon finishing, to be fin- finishing a rabbinic studies program. So very multifaceted, very sort of a holistic approach at the world. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I'll let you fill in the blanks for what I missed there as I set it up. But sort of, you know, how did you fall into this world of mental health? Was it sort of a moment in your life which made you say, you know what, I want to help people? Or was it sort of all these cum- like cumulative things that just happened in your life that led you to this path? 
Well, I think, first of all, the three things that I am doing, so I'm a registered psychotherapist in private practice. Most of the population that I'm working with are struggling with OCD and ADHD, and I do a lot of integrative support, so I kind of combine a lot of coaching when it comes to executive function, which is sort of the building blocks of focus, time management, impulse control, regulating your time, all that kind of management with typical mental health stuff that people bring in with anxiety, depression, OCD, panic, all sorts of things. Um, But I look at all the things that I do as interconnected. So as a psychotherapist in private practice, I'm fascinated with people. I want to help them. I want to work with them. I want to see them see themselves change and improve. As a business owner for a student mental health company across Canada called Resolve, we hire therapists to work with students and we're sort of like the middle middleman. You can call us uh, sort of a, an, a marketplace, if you will, mm. or just an online therapy platform. And now that things have changed to virtual as a business, it's a totally different model. Low startup costs, um, che- cheaper access, like cheaper things to get started. Very, very little to to spend in terms of you know the day to day because you're not paying for rent and you don't need the renting space. Uh, equipment you don't need really so much. You might need like a, a good video conferencing software, but mm-hmm. it's really interesting what's changing there. And the quality of video therapy is actually amazing. And I can talk a little bit about that later. But again, why did I do that? Because students aren't getting the support they need uh, in the way that they need it and they need help and they need an integrated help. A lot of these institutions send them to various places. If they have academic or executive function concerns, let's say they have ADHD, they'll go to accessibility services, but then they have a mental health concern and they'll go to the health and wellness even though a lot of issues that people have let's say with ADHD and executive function and academics have a mental health component not to mention that there's also the career center but the main ingredient there is that I want to help people Mm. I want to understand people better and see how I can provide more value in their life so both of those things are basically the same thing one is a micro the other is a macro and being a, a rabbi so you know a lot of people talk about this, but psychotherapy wasn't invented a hundred years ago with Freud. Um, healing, uh, personal growth, becoming better people, becoming more healthy, all of these things have been talked about in various religious traditions for forever. And so the role of a rabbi in many respects, of course, it's to be a decisor of Jewish law, which is not the kind of rabbi that I am. Uh, I don't have the the in- intense learning background of thousands of years of case studies to know how to create Jewish law for today. Um, but the other part of the rabbi is to be a p- person of the people. Um, the first rabbi was Moshe, Moses, uh, in, the, in the Torah, in the Bible. And the main characteristic of, what's, of why he was chosen as a leader was because the first thing it, he ever did, it says in the, in the Torah, that he grew up, Moses grew up, and he went out to his people and saw their suffering. That was the first instant of Moses, who grew up in the palace of the greatest uh, dynasty in the ancient world of Egypt, and all he could do was walk out to the world and see, see the suffering of his people and want to relieve the suffering and help. And so a rabbi's main role is to, again, understand people, to listen to people, and to help people. And so even though these are three different things that I'm doing, I really see them as being one thing mm-hmm. uh, in various forms. Obviously, you know, as a, as a rabbi, that's a different uh, kind of community focus, I would say. But uh, to me, it's all, it's all one uh, just different ways of expressing it. I was going to ask this a little bit later in the conversation and get to that, but I, I, I think I'm going to start with it as I change my mind and hear you speak about it. What, so with the, the Jewish faith, what's the kind of view when it comes to like mental health? Um, I know, I shouldn't say I know, but through the grapevine and what I can gain to understand, some religions have different views on what is mental health, and then some don't view it as all as really a thing. So when it comes to the Jewish faith, what is sort of its view around mental health? It's a really big question, but I think it's a it's a it's a good question. So first of all, of course, everything in society we're hopefully evolving and changing and growing. And one of the most important things about Jewish tradition is that it's, it has an oral law. It has an oral tradition. So Alongside our fixed texts, the Torah, the five books of Moses, the 24 books of the larger Tanakh or the Old Testament, we're not really so connected to the New Testament. That's a different discussion. Um, We we don't follow that. Um, There's an evolution. 
there's a growth. There is a change in how we understand people that, that has gone all the way till today. So Jewish law uh, has adapted to varying circumstances. For example, the laws of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is one of the parts of the Ten Commandments. It's, it's an integral part of our society that we live in. We don't even realize that the concept of a weekend, the concept of a seven-day week is a, is a very biblical idea that there is an end to a week and that there is a space and a time for not work. And in fact, in the, in the ancient world, one of the things that differentiated, especially uh, in, the, in the story of the Exodus, when the Jews were slaves, the Israelites were slaves, is that they didn't have rest. The first human being in the Torah to say the word rest was actually Pharaoh in saying these people should not have rest. And one of the main ingredients of not being a slave is to have a day of rest. But the idea of how rest evolves over time at one point meant freedom from tyranny. Freedom from absolutely being, an, being owned by your work and not having the ability to sleep and to take a breather. Freedom from every day being exactly the same. When you're a slave, every day is no different than the day before. There's no continuity. There's no cycle. There's no way, where to improve. There's no pause points. But today, it means something almost more than that. Thankfully, a lot of people aren't slaves. Um, of course, there are still major issues in human rights going on in the world but one thing that a lot of people resonate with today is for the Sabbath, there's an idea, there's many laws, and let's say there's a laws about not lighting a fire. So it meant one thing at one time, but there are derivatives over time, and eventually that related to technology in many respects. So today, there's no uh, phones, no cell phones, no driving a car. So for 24, 25 hours actually starting this evening, um, I got no technology, I have no phone, I don't send emails and it's hard to imagine what it would be like because i'm in the rat race 24 6 they say 24 hours a day six days a week not 24 7 and so it's just an amazing contrast but the value of and the way that the laws go today like they never had technology back then so you take what was what was and you move forward and so when it comes to mental health um you know spiritual health was the sort of kind of synonym to that so there's all sorts of ideas around how to be healthy, how to be besimcha, how to be happy, how to avoid negative states of emotion, how to be more holistic, how to follow your values, all sorts of things. The language changes, but human beings striving for these things does not. I would say that there's definitely more of an awareness today of mental health that is sort of outside of your religious devotion, whereas back then it may have been more connected to religious devotion. So we might look for more sources, whether it's biological or other environmental things, to understand why people might feel a certain way. But mental health, actually, if you go back to the Psalms of David, which is a whole set of 150, ver uh, you can get a whole inner world of human beings back then. And very similar, human beings and mental health have always been a, a thing. Maybe the understanding has changed but practically speaking, there are differences. So we have categories for people that are kind of, I guess for lack of a better word, were considered at one point clinically not able or competent to make decisions. Um, it's called a shote. There's all sorts of levels of being exempt from certain commandments because of your mental state. Um, so there's definitely been a sensitivity in Jewish law mm -hmm. about it. But I would say that it was all just the whole religion is a, is a, is trying to I mean, there's many aspects of it, but one part of it that's very important is human growth and human development and human healthiness, both with God, relationships with other people, and with ourselves. And so a lot of Jewish law has implicit, sometimes less explicit, impact on what you would do for mental health. Huge amount of work on gratitude. I make over 100 blessings a day. The idea of not always falling after desires. A lot of these things can be found. They might not have been talked about the same way that we do today. Uh, but there's lots of parallels, cognitive behavioral therapy, lots of ideas of changing the way you think about things. A lot of it is embedded in Jewish law and Jewish practice without always being so explicit about that. That is so interesting because you're right that we have this concept that mental health wasn't really discussed. I mean, prior to even like 2010, I mean, that's an arbitrary number, but that we didn't recognize it. But historically and just what you just detailed we did we just it was like you said categorized as something different as just you know um things that we we, we would do like you just meant gratitude all those different things and i yeah. find it so interesting 
and I don't know if maybe this is a big cause, but sort of as people moved away from the church, whether that be um, Catholic, we just became, you know, less sort of spiritual and connected to, um, to, to God or whoever you pray to um, and moved into more a capitalist society uh, and sort of grinding. Um, maybe we saw a little bit more mental health issues, not necessarily mental illness, but mental health issues of just stress and, and all these things. And do you, do you think that there is a correlation between sort of moving away from those original sort of teachings and values um, into a more sort of rapid pace of the economy and politics and all these different things. Do you think there's a correlation there? And that maybe that's why it was struggled until we recategorized it as like mental health and wellness. Even then there's a, there's a lot to say about that. Um, a couple things. Number one, when it comes to mental health today, the way we talk about it sometimes is divorced from doing good, like doing the right thing living with integrity, having a value system, but so much of mental health. If, if someone's, for example, you know, walking down the street and tripping people and hitting them, right? And doing something distractive. So you could talk about maybe how they got there, what their mental health plat portfolio was, what their life was like in the past. But at the end of the day too, negative, it, it, the way that we act in, in the world and the way that we treat people and the way that we do take responsibility or don't take responsibility for the type of person that we are is part of it. So we don't want to just blame and say, oh, it's my mental health or not. And today there's sort of this divorce a little bit from morality and mental health and values. And that's why I really resonate with types of therapy that take into account our value systems. And I know that we have varying value systems, but I'm not a complete relativist in, in any sense of the word. I mean, there's a huge spectrum of expression of how people live lives. But I do think there are things that are just right and things that are wrong. And sometimes when we do wrong things, that actually really has a negative impact on our mental health. So it's not necessarily the best thing to just go to cognitive behavioral therapy, be validated and everything else. You should also ask yourself, you know, how am I living? How am I, how am I gonna feel so good about myself if I'm yelling all the time at people that I care about? Sure, I should work on emotion regulation, but I also need to consider the kind of person that I am. And I don't know if it has to do so much with just this society, um, as you were talking about in the contemporary world. But so that's just one thing about that. But I think a broader issue that you are bringing up that I think is having a huge impact on people's well being is that a religious society generally has robust community support. And in today's day and age, I think that one of the more difficult parts of not having religious foundations, not being rooted in religious stories, is that we lose our community. We lose our sense of, of meaning that comes not just because of fulfilling my personal desires, not because I have a great job, because I work out, because I have self-care, because I know about cognitive behavior therapy, or I know about psychodynamic therapy, and I know how to analyze myself. To me, mental health is rooted as well in the broader systems that we are a part of. And so community life is very, to me, is a bit lacking in our society. And that's really sad. Um, the, the word simcha, joy, in Judaism is in fundamentally a shared experience. There are other verbs. There are just like, you know, they talk about the snow and the Inuit. Um, there are very many verbs for simcha, for joy, in the Jewish vocabulary. Gila, rina, there's all sorts of different types of happiness, ashrei, all these different types of meanings. But the one that we use the most is simcha. And these relate to some of the Jewish holidays, which are inherently shared pro experiences, shared stories, shared memories. So I find a lot of meaning in my life from being a part of a story that didn't start with me. Mm. I, I can trace the family lineage back all the way to Moses. You know, we're in an unbroken chain. Jews also accept converts, so there's people all over the world that in today's day and age, don't have a, a connection to their Jewish roots, but feel a part of the community. Uh, some people, there are places that Jews were persecuted of four or 500 years ago, and their ancestors have these sort of weird, strange practices that they don't know where they come from. They might light candles on Friday night that Jews do across the world, but there's been 10, 15 generations of no practice, and then they discover their family history. But there's so much meaning to be found in who you are, 
whether it's religious or just where you came from, what were your, do you know the names of your great, great, great grandparents? Do you know what their story was? What, what does that mean to you? It's very hard today because a lot of people also have moved from other places and have assimilated very strongly. And although um, there's so much amazing value to have from being an individual and from the individual being highly appreciated and valued, what's lost is community. And there's a sense of transcendence and meaning that comes when you're a part of something greater than yourself. So for me, one of those things, is, of course, you know, family, friends, my relationship with God, the work that I do, my mental health practice, these are all things that transcend myself, but highly involve me as an individual. But the story of being a part of the Jewish people for me is a very, very meaningful one. And it goes back and it's, it's, it's history moving forward towards a goal. And it's just really important, I think, for people to discover who they are, not in just the God willing, 120 years, as we say, as of life that people have, but really, who who are you? You have DNA living inside of you of all these people. What did they live for? What was their life about? To me, that is really fascinating, and I think that that is missing in our contemporary world. Yeah, um, you know, someone especially who comes from like a, an English Scottish background, like most people, sort of in this where where I am in the world in Canada, the Western world. We're like, we have, I couldn't even tell you my great, great grandparents' names. So there's no connection to any sort of history or culture. And you see this a lot on social media where um, a lot of people from different cultures are starting to reconnect with sort of the, the cultural background of it. And you are seeing some value in that with, with people rediscovering, you know, who their family is and where they came from. Um, and I think that's bringing a sense of community. But on the other side, I think we are, while there is, we, a lot of us are finding community on social media, which is great. And it's especially helped during this pandemic where that has been really hard to do in person. I think, I don't think social media has the same value as face-to-face, as, as neighbors, as, you know, getting together with a bunch of people on, on, a, on a day that, and, you know, sharing things. Where do you fall on the social media side of that part of the conversation? Because there are some pros, but there are some cons. Um, so using, you know, your background as a psychotherapist and as a rabbi, where do you fall on the social media conversation when it comes to this conversation about community and finding out who we are? Well, on one level, I'll say two words, Cal Newport, um, digital minimalism. I am a big mm. proponent of having healthy hygiene online. A lot of people are struggling with their executive functions, sustaining attention, focus, learning to delay gratification and the impulse to constantly check things. That's really hard. And of course, people take medication that can help. People learn strategies about you know harnessing attention. But when you have the low-hanging fruit of all that stuff just sitting around waiting for you without any regulation, it's almost impossible. It's like a 10 out of 10 challenge. And so today I'm concerned, very concerned with people's uh, susceptibility to compulsive screen time use. And so as a psychotherapist, especially working with ADHD, I don't mess around with that. I use apps like Focus Me. I have things where people have large, we block apps, we block keyword searches, we create time, like scheduled things. And these are unbreakable ones. You can't delete the app later and be like, you know, get around it. You really can regulate these things. And I think that that's the first line of defense in order to gain your time back and to gain your attentional focus and to create something of value, to do deeper work, which requires you to be immersed. And when you have a moment when you're bored or you have this impulse, you just accept it for that second and you go back to what you're doing. Today, it's just too easy to go to another world, to do another, go here, go there. And so on that level, I'm very concerned about social media, especially. Um, and I know a lot of sort of the inner workings that went into creating that. It's it's unfortunate. I'm not saying everybody's malice with it, but it's they know mm-hmm. the people that create these things know a lot about, for example, uh, intermittent positive reinforcement. The idea that the, mo- the things that get us the most hooked are, for example, I believe it was um, maybe rats in a... Uh, in a cage and they noticed that if or maybe it was birds it doesn't matter some sort of animal (laughs) Animal. that eats has pellets um, that it's not if they press it they press a button down and they get a a little bit of food so that was one way to do it every time they press it down you get food and, and press it down get food but what they discovered is that if they sometimes 
if they pressed it down and sometimes food came and other times they pressed it down and things did not come, so it was inconsistent, but it wasn't known, they would press, 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 press more and more. So it's the inconsistency of the reward that actually made the, them, the, them press down more, more, compulsively click down more to get more food. It's not when it was predictable or unpredictable. If it was never coming, of course, there's like sort of a learned a helplessness. If it's coming regularly, that's, uh, uh, you know, that's, I guess, a level of being addicted, let's say. But when it was, sometimes it's going to come, sometimes it's not, that's when they were pressing down the most. And for us, slot machines, that's how it works. You mm-hmm. press down. And sometimes you're going to get a reward and sometimes you're not, but there's a possibility that you will. So you're really hooked when you post something. Sometimes you're going to get a lot of likes. Sometimes you're not. Sometimes you're going to get positive comments. Sometimes you're not. And that's really messing with our primal need to connect and to be appreciated and to be a part of a community and a tribe. And all of that is playing out on social media. At the same time, it's really nice that people can share them, share ideas, express themselves. Um, I'm, I, I think community can be built. But there is also something, a felt sense of being viscerally in a room with people, like the synagogue, um, groups that get together, playing sports, uh, all sorts of community type things that just cannot be replicated at all whatsoever online uh, that I've seen. And of course, there's you know remnants that you can get, but face-to-face interaction, I think that that's what's been so hard for people during COVID. And I'm concerned that there's going to be a residue effect of people being very uncomfortable uh, getting back into that place. So social media has some benefits. I see a lot of concerns, especially for younger people that have poor abilities, just naturally where their brain is at in terms of its development to feed feed off or move away from distraction. Um, So those are some of the concerns I have. Mm -hmm. But it is really nice what people are doing. It's nice that we can have this conversation without having to, you know, travel. And I really appreciate my whole practice is online. Mm -hmm. So there's a way to have meaning, very meaningful work and interaction um, without being in person, but there's something that's lost in mm-hmm. community events. I just don't see being able to be done so well. I agree. Um, and I know, I know being a parent isn't easy. I, I'm pretty sure I could hear uh, the mm. crying in the background there. Yeah. My uh, baby, you know, my parents have eight kids. Um, so wow. they're very busy. So uh, while I'm not a parent, I know it's challenging. And sometimes it's just easier to give them the tablet or the laptop or the TV just to like, go away. You know, mommy's mental health isn't very good right now. Just like distract yourself. Um, but I'm wondering, you know, you're helping kids, especially with like ADHD, OCD, like you said, with uh, executive functioning disorders. Um, I guess in your experience with your colleagues and peers and in the larger literature, are we seeing an increase with these sorts of disorders um, in young people? Are more young people coming to you because their their parents find them really struggling with things and do you think that it's just more people are being diagnosed or is it there a correlation with sort of this use of technology at such a young age my i guess my short answer is i'm not really sure um i do think so most people I'm work, working with that have ADHD or struggling with ADHD are taking medication. There's things that they're, they have other ways of supporting themselves. I do think there is a concern with overdiagnosis because the criteria, first of all, there's different ways. You can get a psychoed assessment, which is kind of a very long and lengthy thing that's very expensive. But a lot of people that are diagnosed with ADHD, they just have a 15, 20-minute conversation with their doctor. The doctor asks them a series of screener questions. And if they meet the criteria, then they'll give the medication. It's not very hard, especially mm-hmm. in today's day and age when things are on a spectrum. You know, you could say you have low, it's low continuum of ADHD. Most people in our society are struggling with some level, whether they have difficulty focusing or that they're impulsive or that their time management is poor. Um, I'm, I, I am nervous sometimes that if you want to find it, you will. But there is really serious cases where it's very hard, it, it, you know, it, it's, there's like the sort of continuum lower levels that I think a lot of people struggle with in certain areas. And then there's the more severe cases. And sometimes I'm working with those and you see something like a, hard to understand, but like an incapacity in to be bored whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Like boredom is, is beyond painful. These are things that's hard for people to relate to. Um, but the problem is, is that there are, te- there are skills you can develop attentional focus being one of those that 
not just that when you are thinking about attentional focus, it's not just that. It's also about initiating tasks, which is part of executive function. It's sustaining attention. It's having goal-directed persistence. It's delaying impulses and emotional sensations that come up in the moment. All those skills, I think, are not being practiced by people because of the me- the way that they consume their time is fast videos, fast entertainment, high level of I need a lot to make me feel connected and focused. And so people are not learning a lot of basic executive function skills, not to mention that I believe it, the research talks about being 25 or 26 before those are more fully developed. Mm-hmm. So you have a combination of really difficult technology with a natural susceptibility to these things at a younger age. And it, it creates a problem. Uh, but I also tell parents, because I speak to a lot of parents, I tell them that even if they, first of all, if their kids are like 13 or 14, I just say, don't. You're okay. You're going to be totally fine. Even if they're 22, they will grow out of a lot of it. The other problem that I do want to mention, though, is that students, especially university students, have a very hard job. So when you get into the workforce, you have a boss. You have an accountability system. You have daily meetings. People need there's, – there's things that you need to do, and if you don't do it, you don't get extensions after extensions mm-hmm. after extensions, or you just fail, but you still stay in the school you'll get fired. There's a lot of accountability that goes into having a job. You're around other people as well, and it makes doing the work easier. The student life is so hard because of what I mentioned. Susceptibility to distraction takes a lot, or, lot longer time for their brains to develop the higher level, uh, you know, delaying gratification, uh, prefrontal cortex type stuff, reasoning, thinking, you know, you know what younger people mm-hmm. can be like. Um, <laughs> combine all of that together with a job that has nobody watching you. You can go to class or you don't have to. You can wait two months to do anything and then at the last minute do everything and it be kind of okay. It's really hard to treat yourself like you're working a job when all those factors are going on and there's just barely anybody looking, uh, lurking at you. So part of the benefit when you do work with somebody in detail is that they're kind of breathing down your neck. I try not to breathe too much, but I get to see Uh, in live time how people are doing on a weekly basis and it really helps just having someone else watch so it's unclear to me when it comes to adhd uh, i think it's being probably a little bit of over diagnosis probably a bit more sensitivity and awareness going into it because it is a real issue for Mm -hmm. so many people even if it is over diagnosed when it comes to ocd though that is a changing entity i think so typically we understand ocd as something very very strange meaning somebody has an intrusive thought that becomes an obsession mm. with maybe some sensations, some you know uh, uh, desires in the moment there. So let's say, for example, somebody typically would be afraid to go into a shower because they think that the shower is contaminated with something that's really dangerous. They'll have intrusive thoughts like, don't go in that shower. If you go in that shower, something bad will happen. And so they do compulsions. Their compulsions might be that when they have to go into the bathroom, they'll wipe it down 1,700 times or they'll shower after their shower to make sure that they were clean from the first shower when they left the shower, something like that. Or they'll avoid the shower altogether. They won't go into a shower. Um, so that's an example of a comp- – that's the compulsion, the compulsive behavior or avoidance. Or they'll think in their head 400 million times about how it's not really bad, it's not really bad, it's not really bad. But what people don't understand about OCD is that those are the sort of cleaning contamination type uh, presentations. I work with people that have concerns that if they have a violent thought, that means that they're a monster. So what they'll do is they'll have an intrusive thought when they're around a child with themselves. Maybe they think they have, an, they have they're scared that they're going to stab their child. They have a knife in their they have a knife, so to speak, in their mind, and they think that oh my gosh, I just had a thought that I'm going to stab somebody, that I'm going to th- stab my child. So now what I'm going to do, that's the obsessive obsessive thought. It just intrudes into you. You can't control it. Maybe it came in one time. Maybe you watched something or whatever. All of a sudden, you believe that your thoughts are who you are and that you're a monster. And so what you have to do is either you think you're the worst person ever uh, and you just live in in hell that you are a a, a terrible person or, or and or you do a bunch of rituals where you avoid your child or you never bring your child into the kitchen because there's a knife there. And if there's a knife there, then you might do something because that's what your brain tells you that you might do. So you have compulsions of avoiding touching things around children. There's other people with, and this is a bigger discussion about sexual orientation. Uh, There's a difference between 
people exploring that and having intrusive thoughts constantly ringing through their brain that they are not, their sexual orientation is not what they think it is. And is a bigger discussion, but these aren't people that are suppressing that part of themselves. It's this, you can assess for this, etc. Mm. But they'll avoid places, they'll avoid talking to people, and those become their compulsions. And so OCD is not just about contamination, the way that with germs, it's, it's basically that an intrusive thought comes in your brain, and you interpret it as somewhat dangerous, either it means something about you, you're going to do something, you have to do all these rituals or compulsions to, pre to protect yourself from this supposed threat. And so on a spectrum, OCD is becoming a lot more aware because people have this idea now. we talk about intrusive thoughts. People have that word in their language. So when people talk to me, they're always talking about intrusive thoughts. I think the general population now kind of understands this idea of obsessive thinking, having an obsessive, an obsessive thought come into your brain, not being able to let it go, doing things to undo that. Um, it's kind of very human. Uh, OCD itself to me is on a continuum. People have obsessions and they have compulsive behaviors to make themselves feel better. And so mm. I think today OCD is becoming a lot more known. There's so many more resources. I can't tell any people go online and finally learn that they're not what their intrusive thought says and that, and, and it's like a lightning bolt or a, or a light switch in a, in a very dark room. Uh, and so I think there is more awareness with OCD. A lot of people are saying, I don't know about a lot of people, but people are saying, at least in my community, that this is the next sort of big awareness. We had a lot on anxiety and depression, and now people are going to really start understanding OCD. And the more they do, the more they're, they're going to see symptoms uh, on a lower scale of OCD in themselves. And so I have a lot of people reach out that just want to do work on intrusive thoughts that don't necessarily have a clinical diagnosis of OCD. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. Yeah. There's, you see it a lot on, um, especially TikTok. Like uh, there's a creator who talks about ADHD or OCD and uh, people kind of like self-diagnose and then will kind of like go on with like saying they also have it, but important to note that it's on a spectrum and that we could all exhibit behavior sort of like most things. I had a gentleman on last Oh God, it would have been two summers ago. Time flies. Um, and he used to, his um, OCD manifested like he thought he was a pedophile. And he actually believed that because he would have the intrusive thoughts come in. Um, and I, I found like it's it's hard for someone. Oh, to, that's the worst one. Yeah. Uh, like to for someone I work a lot with that one. Oh, it's, it would be horrible. What a, like a horrible thing to experience. Well, what's horrible about it is that um, a lot of people can't accept if they have pedophilic thoughts. Uh, that are intrusive and pedophilia. A lot of these, like, no one says you're a violent person because you have violent thoughts. A lot of people think that people think that, but if you're a, if you have violent thoughts that you can't control, no one's going to say no one's. I don't call these people and say they're a danger or a menace. But when it comes to pedophilia, mm. I don't know if I've even worked out how I want to talk about this publicly. But it's it's pretty hellish because these people do not want to act on it and they don't get pleasure whatsoever from it. But because are in our society today, you are definition. You can be a pedophile and and not be molest people. Like mm -hmm. you can be a pedophile by orientation uh, and not molest people, and it's for good reason. Very um, stigmatized. It's it's not a good thing. But I think the issue is is that people that are struggling with this, either because they are a pedophile and they but they would never ever do anything. They don't feel like they have any place. Like there are there are people that yeah. have these thoughts and are are not having POCD, pedophilia OCD, and they they can, they are a pedophile, but they would never ever 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 do anything about it. But it's really hard for them to find a place anywhere. So then the people that have POCD who who hate like have no and this is again the line is really hard. This is why I I say nothing more. Psych speak to a psychiatrist. Speak to a doctor about the, if this issue. Don't diagnose yourself. Yeah. Don't test yourself to see if you feel pleasure or not out of like of thinking about it. Don't go there. But when people have the the POCD, it's so disgusting. It's to them. And and but the alternative is that they can't accept it. They won't if they if if part of the work, especially when you get to exposure therapy, is accepting the thoughts. That's really hard. It's really easy, much easier to accept them sometimes. I mean, everybody thinks they have the hardest OCD, which is a whole other discussion. But um it's very hard to accept thoughts about pedophilia. Not doesn't mean you believe them, agree with them, but it's very hard to even let them be there without trying to fight them because the worst thing, you would never want to live with yourself if you were. Yeah. And uh, it's really scary. Yeah. It's a really sad one. But I and have helped people with that one. 
Well, it's one of the conversations that society at large isn't sort of ready to handle. There's certain like subjects that we just we're we're not there cognitively to like discuss in the open. And that's definitely one of them. And separating mm. the nuance and all the different sorts of things you were just speaking about, like it just a lot of people we're not there. Um, no. So it makes it that much more difficult, as you said, stigmatized for the people who are going through things like that. Yeah. I know it's a, off topic from that, but going back to talking a little sure. bit before, um, but given like what you do with your company and this uh, with kids and one of the struggles I've experienced in sort of my personal life is trying to help a child with some of these things that like refuses help or doesn't accept they need help. They're still a little too young um, to really like understand it. I mean, aside from like going to a therapist, which I think they should do and try to figure it out. Like how can parents, how can people in their lives like try to reach them, try to sort of be like, you know, what you're doing isn't okay. And we need to get you help. Cause from what I understand, I could be wrong, but it's what we I've been told that as soon as I think it's 12, that, you need their consent to give them help. Um, so like, how do we like help kids that need help and might not want it? So if it's not as of a severe situation, but the parents know, and I know that they need help. I, what I'm not really good at is trying to, and there are some really good therapists that help. Like my sister's great with this, that she helps parents with the indirect subtle stuff that you wouldn't like helping behind, I would call it like behind the scenes, helping uh, move the child either to want to get more help or to stopping destructive things without being more confrontational. So there's definitely things that you can do there. It really depends on the age. Mm-hmm. Um, but at some point, yeah, they, they have agency. They get to decide and not everybody and not every decision do kids get to decide, but you can't really force people. Um, but there are experts that work with ambivalence. Ambivalence means people that maybe 89% of them have no interest in this, but you know, 11% are kind of interested. So what you do is you try to, and motivational interviewing is great for this. And I have a whole podcast on this called change talk where I interview Mm -hmm. people about change. Um, and you want to kind of pull at the 10% and there's a whole set of ways to do that so that it becomes much larger and the other part gets smaller. So that's, those are helpful. Um, but there is just a part of it that it's really hard to, to convince people, um, to change. And I think one of the great things that you can do that resolve is working on is education. So if it's in the school curriculum or there are classes, then they'll get to learn it and they'll get to learn it in a way that the center of attention is not on them. So they'll get to learn about things that they might need to work on or work through, whether it's about intrusive thoughts or anything else. But it's it's less threatening. It's less intimidating because it's coming from a, a generalist perspective. And I think that education is very important for mental health, at least knowing kids should know what they can help or what can help them get themselves out of it, even if it's not coming from a parent. But the other thing as well is that, and I was talking to a parent about this uh, the other day in an interview, um, sometimes it needs to come from somebody else. Mm. Sometimes it needs to be from a friend, depending on the age. Sometimes it needs to come from a friend or just say, I, I, I've noticed something's going on. And then, and if there's anybody you want to speak to, not me, there you go. Um, but it's very hard sometimes for kids and parents mm-hmm. to be on the same page with this. Um, and a lot of times parents want to fix, fix, fix. Mm-hmm. Um, and they got to listen, listen, listen. And maybe then they can build more trust in that sense. But it's a hard topic mm-hmm. and not one that I'm very good at. Mm. When it comes to our schooling, and our education system, uh, and we're both in Ontario, so I, I know there will be some differences among jurisdictions, but is there, like in society, we're learning to destigmatize and learning all these words and educating ourselves, but is there still a, a gap in, in the schools for kids, right? There's so much we need to teach kids. Is there a gap with educating with mental health in our like current sort of curriculums and and where we're at with that. I think there's a big gap and the gap isn't just with the kids. This is how I think of the gap right now. So we talk about mental health. So I think it's now kind of cliche to say that we need to start talking about mental health. Mm -hmm. I think we are talking about mental health. There's no doubt that it is, is a multi-billion dollar, like multi-billion dollars of research and industry 
this is not a small thing anymore. This is a growing, this is a field. And then there's not to mention the coaching and all, I mean, people, personal growth, self-help. We're talking about mental health a lot. There's a lot of talk about mental health. It's the, the matter of, of getting it out there in a really practical way, like the hands-on tactile solutions and ways to relate. Uh, that to me is the next big thing. And what's really proliferating today, for example, people talk about mindfulness all the time, whether you're in the mental health world or the self-help, personal growth, spirituality, um, all everybody's talking about mindfulness. Mindfulness has some great research. I'm not a researcher, but there is some great research on that. Some of it's really good. Some of it's a bit hyped, hyped up and it's mixed and it's not so, it's not the solution to every single thing in the planet earth whatsoever in any way, but sometimes people talk about it like that. Mm -hmm. But mindfulness is one thing amongst, with the mental health world, the research that has gone into how to develop a healthy physical, psychological, and emotional, and spiritual life. There's so much more skills, so fundamental, like dialectical behavior therapy, DBT, is mm -hmm. one of the great, and acceptance and commitment therapy in particular. Those two together, some like really, really, really fundamental stuff, like unbelievable ways of learning, looking at the world, practicing healthy lifestyle and living from a psychological, emotional, behavioral level, every level. And those kind of things are less popularized, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so I barely do, I do some mindfulness, I don't, but I don't really even call it mindfulness all the time. There's so much more out there that needs to be talked about. And the skills, the, I think an issue is, is that typically... The therapists, psychologists, psychotherapists, social workers, um, you know, and psychiatrists, there's sort of a gatekeeper of research. There's a, and, and like it's sort of in the upper echelons of, you know, the academia. And now there's lots of books, of course, but it's still yet to enter into the mainstream, mm -hmm. these skills. Like the, the, and these skills, by the way, we're not talking about culturally specific. They really can apply to people not in the West, this is East and West and South and North, human, human, universally human skills that can be incorporated into anybody's cultural specific lifestyles. These are the kinds of things that we have, I haven't seen yet become so easy to access. So, you know, there's lots of books, but we want, I want to move beyond books and worksheets. Mm -hmm. I want to like move into practice in a way where it's like you practice at a young age, you're constantly doing it. It's, it's, you're, you're, you're learning it every year. It's done in context with kids in a classroom as opposed to some people get buy books or they go to therapy and they learn the skills. That's, I think, what needs to change is that it just needs to be fully out there, um, not hidden and protected anymore. And mm. that's part of the goal as well for me is to, to completely like, yeah, teach people mental health as a skill. Mm -hmm. That's uh, such a good point. Like even being connected to the mental health industry or community for, you know, the last seven, eight years. Um, I just learned about DBT this summer from one of my friends who's getting her PhD in neuroscience. So I, I had never even heard of it. And I think some of these things, you know, mindfulness is sexy. You know, it's, it's, it's a nice term. DBT actually putting in like hard work to ourselves. I mean, it goes into everything that we always want the quick and easy fix to things. If we want to lose weight, we're going to try this drastic diet. We're not going to make holistic lifestyle changes to like get better. And Slow I think this, changes. Yeah. Right. Like we want it like 30 days or less, like let's drop 20 pounds or, you know, I want to take this one weekend course and I want my mental health to be all better when it comes to actually putting in the work and the hands-on stuff. That's not sexy. That doesn't sell. That's not, Western commercialized, you know, and I think that's part of the big problem um, when it comes to mental health, because so much of it has become commercialized and about money and about quick and easy fixes when mental health is not, it never will be a quick and easy fix. Well, that in and of itself creates a problem, uh, the quick and easy fix. Um, you know, we have this model in our world uh, where if there's something, you know, if you want to get your car fixed, you go to the mechanic and the mechanic fixes the car for you. That's great. That's a simple, uh, simple philosophy, simple model. It's not real in the mental health world. So even in the physical, physical health, you get a surgery and hopefully you recover and you go, it's very passive. We have great, incredible technologies for our physical health. 
You go, you go procedure, it fixes you, you're done. Uh, mental health is very complex because it doesn't work like that. The medical model, and this is, by the way, not a knock on medication. I'm a big, um, here's what I'm a big fan of. I'm a big fan of people having a doctor to talk about whether medication works for them. I'm not saying yes or no. I'm just a big supporter of that as being one of many uh, ways to improve. So let, let me let me preface it with that. And most of the clients I work with are on medication and it can do wonders for people. But medication is passive. Take the medication and it will fix things. But for example, with OCD, the way to get better is hopefully medication can help people get to the point where they actually stop doing their compulsive behaviors. And that involves a lot of work that involves slowly delaying gratification. It's not a one-time thing where you do it, you get your surgery, six-week recovery, and you're done. It's a constant practice. A lot of our mental health work, anger. It's not you find the best technique and you do it one time and then, and that's why people sometimes do mental health work as a discovery process. And that's great. Like again, many different ways, whether it's a psychodynamic approach, whether you go back into deeper reasons why you are the way you are, even though to me, you know, if someone thinks that they're going to find the singular reason as to why they are the way they are, not to mention from a genetic standpoint, memories that they don't even know. Um, But again, there's discovery. You can have self-awareness, learn more about your unconscious drives and your motives and the way you interact with the world. But at the end of the day, and that sometimes can help people change to an extent, but at the end of the day, making changes improving your mental health is not, and I, and I repeat, not a quick fix. It's not about the amount of strategies you have. It's about deliberate practice over a long period of time, which is very unattractive. It's very <laughs> unattractive. I, but I'm repeating that all the time to clients. Mm-hmm. I say, I'm, I'm hopefully giving you what I think are some of the best tools and strategies to practice for yourself right now. But if I give them to you, there's no magic formula. It's not a, a hocus magic potion that you read it and it does anything. It's practice over a sustained period of time. And that again is not um, the way we do things around here. (laughs) But uh, it's such a crucial, crucial point. And anyone who ever comes to me with a mental health concern, um, that's sort of the, the lesson I also have to give them, right? Like you can try one thing, um, but that like it, nothing's ever going to solve it. It's like just a continuous sort of journey evolution, however you want to categorize yourself. It's never going to just be, you go to the doctor, get medication and you'll, and everything's gone. It'll help. But I get like, you, like you just mentioned, it's a piece of the puzzle. You start, you gotta do all sorts of different things. It's maintenance. Yeah. Maintenance. Exactly. Um, I know I only have a little bit of time with you, so I want to end on this kind of last question. About 15 minutes, but if you want to end on, if you want to ask this question and then we can end on it or we can keep going. Okay, perfect. 15 minutes. Okay, got the time. Um, Yeah. So as we know, and even three years ago, I spoke with a young woman talking about Holocaust education and anti-Semitism. And um, I would not say since that time, it's gotten any better. In fact, it has got worse. There is a rise of right-wing nationalism across the world um, we just saw it here in Canada less than a few weeks ago, people marching around our capital city with a Nazi flag. Um, you know, we have other worldly events. Um, I mean, even Russia right now is accusing Ukraine of um, having neo-Nazis when, you know, the, everyone's Jewish. Lots of different things going on. Um, but nonetheless, mm-hmm. anti-Semitism, like racism, is a it's a it's an issue. It's a mental health issue. It's all sorts of different things. And it's not easy and I know we had this conversation um, when we were speaking before we decided to do this. As a psychotherapist, as a rabbi, how are you navigating sort of this, this rise of anti-Semitism around the world and you know, trying to help people in your community with their mental health and, and not only that, but yourself and your family? Like it's a scary time. So how are you sort of trying to deal with this on an individual basis? Because obviously we can't fix the world ourselves. Okay. Um, I will try to present this in the best way possible. Number one, there is a lot of anti-Semitism in the world for sure. On the right, it is primarily, again, has the the same racial tropes because believe it or not, and this is an issue with Jews and whiteness, it's very hard for us, is that 
we were not accepted as white in Germany. We haven't been white until considered white. And I, I wouldn't even say we're white. It's a very, very, very difficult topic because, mm-hmm. and this is the whole thing with Whoopi Goldberg or, you know, it was racial anti-Semitism. Yes. Yes, it was. Yes. Jews did not have pure blood. Yes. We were not white. No way we were white. We were far from white. Um, today, when I'm not wearing my kippah and my tzitzis, maybe I can be passing. Um, but no, I don't even identify. Um, I guess if I need a break and uh, a break or something, I can walk around without some of those things on and then I can pass as white. But from the, from the right, the, yeah, the racial anti-Semitic tropes are alive and well. I will say though, not concerned particularly at those at the march. I know that it was one person, one instant. And although it was a complex set of, I feel mixed about the convoy, a lot of things I supported, um, maybe not agree with every issue at all, but I definitely didn't, in, on record, do not want to categorize them mm-hmm. as, ra- and especially these are the working class people that started, you, you can see things that they said at the beginning about the people driving the trucks. You know, up until very recently, been getting our food throughout this whole pandemic. I know that it's a big charged issue, but I don't want to see it so one-sidedly. Mm-hmm. And of course, I don't agree with any associations with anything that is destructive, anti-Semitic, racist in any single way, shape, or form. I, I don't I don't think that it was primarily that whatsoever in any way. But that's just a representation. You saw what happened in Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's on the right. And on the left, it's a very complicated issue. Uh, the left hates the Jews because of Israel. Uh, that's a big, big, big topic. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't equate the two. Anti-Semitism and, uh, and cr- criticism of Israel is the same thing. Uh, there's lots of nuanced conversations that people can have about the land of Israel, but what you're seeing more today and what you saw last year happen was more about the de- basically the demonization of the state as an existing entity, which associates it with a lot of colonial uh, things that are very, way more going on there. We We have started in the land uh, over 3,300 years ago and have had a Jewish presence there for forever. And so uh, that issue is big. The big issue is not whether, you know, you can talk a lot about what's going on in Palestine, in Gaza, lots of conversations about Hamas and how that is impacting the Palestinian people, uh, disagreeing with Israeli policies about how to relate to it. All those things are totally on the table. I don't look at that as wrong, but when people denounce and say, that Israel should be destroyed um, and say we're not anti-Semitic. Um, people used to say that about Judaism, uh, especially in Christian Christian land. They would say, we're not anti-Jewish, we're anti-Judaism. So we're not anti-Jewish people, but we're anti the religion of Judaism. It's because for various reasons. And so today, there is when, when people are calling for the destruction of the Jewish state, they don't realize that that's calling for genocide against us because there's about dozens of Arab lands all around us and there's nowhere... Jews are not welcome in any of those places whatsoever, and that's a complicated history. There was about 600,000-plus uh, Jews living in Arab lands uh, about 70, 70, 80, 90, whatever, many years ago, and I'm not going to get into the comp- complexity of when Israel got the land of Israel in 1948, the displacement of Arabs at that time. Mm-hmm. There's so much you can talk mm-hmm. about and so much nuanced conversation that you can have and criticism on every level. But on the left, the anti-Semitism is, is, yeah, the Jews are basically just white colonialists. And when you go to Israel, half the people there are not white at all. They come from Arab countries. They're Moroccan, Spanish, Yemen, Afghan, Afghani, every religion, race, I'm sorry, every race and religion, tons of two million Arabs there. But the problem is, is that today it's a, it's a dirty word. And there are Jews that are very progressive, very, very progressive, um, but have a lot of struggle with their relationship with Israel because if you're a progressive and you don't have a demonized perspective on Israel, it's very hard today. Mm-hmm. So I sometimes am embarrassed to talk about my family in Israel, my relationship with Israel, my history, my family's history that goes back thousands of years in the land because of fear that I'm going to be labeled basically a, the, the epitome of the West, of everything bad about the West. And I don't think that the West is inherently only bad in any way, shape, or form. I'm very pro-West and also Pro learning about the dark, darker history mm-hmm. of all of these things. I just have a nuanced approach. Mm-hmm. But what you do notice in anti-Semitism um, is that whatever big trends are going on gets implanted on the Jews. We're, we're a scapegoat. Mm-hmm. We're basically a scapegoat. So people have problems with colonialism. 
the Jews become the epitome of colonialism. People have problems with race, racial theories, racial science in the 1920s, 30s. Jews are the venom of society. That is not, by the way, has nothing to do with the amount of hatred, bigotry that goes on for black people. Everybody, everybody, unfortunately, there's a lot of hatred in our world. And, but the number one thing I would say about this topic is that I don't identify as a victim. I know how much bloodshed exists in Jewish history. This is probably the best time to be Jewish ever because we, we know at the back of our mind, we've only lasted ever in one in our, outside of Israel um, in a society for 100 years, maybe 200 years before, 300 years, sometimes 1,000 at best, especially in the Arab lands. We had a longer history there, but we've never felt fully secure and safe uh, in any place. And so we're kind of always wandering. And the way that we cope is that we acknowledge that we don't get always treated very well while also appreciating where we are and doing our best to rebuild. And so I will not stay in that mentality. And, and, my, and my family, the, 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 you know, a lot of family members, um, thank, uh, my great-grandfather, his, all his siblings were killed in the Holocaust. So he's the only one he came, happened to come in 19, 1910. So he got there before, but the whole family was annihilated. Um, but the key in Jewish history is to rebuild. And uh, the, the national anthem in Israel is called Tikva, Hatikva, which means the hope. And Rabbi Sachs, that's uh, one of the greatest uh, Jewish uh, voices in the, in, in, in the West, or he just passed away a year and a half ago, mm. prolific thinker, very much you know, involved with all religions and was a, was a very universalistic figure. He said that, that the Jews are the conversation of hope in the history of humankind. And the story of the Exodus is, is, is that, is that we were victims. And every year we read the Passover story at, at Passover, uh, around Easter time in the in the uh, lunar uh, solar calendar, we read our history. We talk about the oppression that we had. We po- that's a part of our story, and we own it, and we talk about it, and we process it. But we say next year in Jerusalem, we have hope that next year is going to be better. And so, anybody that's really stuck, whether your 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 victimization is from your religion, your race, your gender, your gen- your sexual orientation, your gender orientation, whatever you feel. Or your, or your mental health diagnosis, whatever your combination of potential victimization is, it doesn't define you. And you can learn to take it, accept it, but not be strangled by it and be, and be told that that is what you are. I am not anti-Semitism. And Jews have so much to offer the world in our wisdom and our ideas and our values that is not about our victimization. And so that's my answer to anti-Semitism and to all forms is to fight it fight racism, fight anti-Semitism, but keep building. I, that's a perfect way to end it. Um, so we'll leave, we'll leave it out there because it's, it's a big conversation, uh, as you yes. mentioned, and one that I typically s- try to stay away from in a lot of sense because it's so charged and I just don't know enough about it to... Yes. That's the one where I just try to like let other people and amplify who needs to be amplified. Um, but I'm glad you you tied that up with with everybody and mental illness because that's something I work on so hard to not mm-hmm. be defined by my my mental illness. Um, yeah, you're not. Yeah, you're not defined by the injustices that you may have experienced, whether it's your fault or not. You don't deny it. You don't deny what's wrong. You don't. That gets you in trouble. But you mm-hmm. don't, and you fight it. And you, if there's things that can change, you try. You you join and you try to fight and you try to change, but. I never want to define myself as a victim. It doesn't work. It's not, it's not the way to go. So if people want to find you, book a service maybe, uh, learn more about Resolve. You mentioned a podcast. Where do people go to check you out and get more? Because this was a fascinating conversation. So you know, I want to know more too. I wish I had more time, but here we yeah. are. So uh, where can people find you? Um, oh, so, okay. So, um, for, so I work in private practice. I have a psychology today profile. Um, I, yeah, I work in that space totally independent of resolve. Uh, and then, um, I, for resolve, www.resolve with two V's.ca. From there, you can see all the therapists that we have. A lot of people also are struggling with, let's call them student concerns, even though they're not students. So we do work with a lot of adults as well. Uh, we have a podcast called the resolve podcast. I have a change talk. That's a separate podcast. We, 
but at Resolve, we interview people uh, about mental health. We interview advocates, we interview experts. We do a lot of work around education. And we're also coming out with peer support, which is a huge part of mental health community because therapy is not always accessible for people mm -hmm. and, and you want to get more out there. So we have peer support coming out also for parents. Um, and yeah, that's kind of where you can find me. I'm, if, if there are people interested in the religion part, I have a podcast called Torah Thoughts. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, well, I want to use my time and I value, and I, and I value um, conversations and, and I appreciate what you're doing. Uh, I appreciate the work that you're doing in the mental health world, but also just the, the fact that you bring people on from so many different walks of life to to talk and and to to share their story. I really appreciate you you having me on. I'm so used to interviewing people that it's very it's strange that I'm being interviewed, to be honest. <laughs> well, I mean, you did a great job on the other side of the mic. Um, I really appreciate you coming on, sharing the time. I, you're busy, obviously, but also um, speaking about this stuff. Uh, it's, I don't think it's a big part of the larger conversation in a lot of sense. And obviously you are incredibly knowledgeable on all sorts of different things and very articulate. Uh, and it was, I, I loved it. So thank you so much for, for sharing the time with me. Thank you. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes.